Good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. Good morning, morning, Ricky. Good morning. Thank you guys all for being here and gathering. It's uh, always a wonderful day to be with the body of Christ. We, as the men, we we talked about Revelation this morning, uh, the church at Ephesus, and uh, Christ encouraged them, exhorted them to remember their first love. And we were talking about thinking back on our time as Christians, as we've been at other churches, and remembering what Christ has done, and proclaiming uh, proclaiming in our own minds and hearts, remembering and stirring up those things that, that Christ has done in our own lives, and and then praying and hoping and, and working toward that uh, end being that we would see uh, the things that we've seen in our past, the, the good things that we've seen of, at other churches and other places that we've been uh, right, be raised up here at Grace Bible Church. So I, it was such a good time, such a wonderful time to be with the men that way. Well, this morning we're going to be back in our study of James, James chapter 5. I've titled my sermon, Nothing, Nothing But the Truth. We're going to preach one verse today, one verse uh, James chapter five, verse twelve. Let me let me pray, and then we'll read uh, that passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We praise you again, Lord. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, Father. I pray personally that I would dis- decrease and that you would increase. That uh, people would not hear Brandon, but they would hear your word, Father. We know that it is promised that your word will not return void. I trust that promise. I wouldn't be standing here today if I believed it was on my own authority that I preach. Father, may I preach in your authority and on your authority alone. Father, I pray for the hearer that you would, your Holy Spirit would illumine minds and hearts to truly hear your word. In Christ's name, amen. James 5.12 James writes, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Well, as many of you know, Angie and I had our 21st wedding anniversary on Thursday. 21 years ago, Uh, We made the solemn and serious vows, committing to one another for the rest of our lives. At the time, we didn't have a clue what we were getting ourselves into, but we we both realized that our commitment before God and man was to be taken seriously. If we didn't, we wouldn't still be married. I can say that honestly. Since taking our vows, we've been through thick and thin. We've done amazing things together, like having four kids who love us and who we love. We've also had difficult and trying times, including sickness and great sorrow. But through it all, God has, God has blessed us with great love for Him and for one another. Angie wrote a note to me on Thursday. Here in part is what she said. What a blessing that God has given us 21 years together so far. We were such an imperfect match that God keeps on perfecting. I can't imagine life without you. I love you through it all, good good and bad. To which I say there's bad. I'm just kidding. I look forward to the years ahead as God grows us even closer together. And to think... That the blessing of our marriage started with those vows, those marriage vows, 21 years ago. We've all heard the traditional wedding vows. Both the, the bride and the groom are asked to affirm their solemn commitment to one another for the rest of their lives. 
The Book of Common Prayer captures the wedding vows, and the groom's vows go something like this, and we've all heard some variation of this. It says something to the effect of, I, Brandon, take thee, Angie, and I, in my case, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance." And then it says this. This is what the Book of Common Prayer says. And thereto I plight my plight thee my troth. Now I had to look that up because I didn't understand it. Troth is a faith or loyalty when pledged in a solemn agreement or undertaking. And plight is a pledge or promise that's solemnly done. It's, it's once faith or loyalty. So that could be stated, I promise solemnly my loyalty to you. That's the the, the wedding vow. Or I promise to remain faithful to you as long as I shall live. Now for the the man and the woman of integrity, this is no small commitment. There is a a, a solemn nature, a, a seriousness about these vows. According to the American Psychological Association, in Western cultures, 40 to 50% of marriage, married couples actually end up in divorce. There's a lot that can be said about this, but I want to draw your attention to this. Basically, that means about, about one in two people are willing to break these wedding vows. Meaning that they didn't take them seriously at all in the first place. Many times, they, they even blame it on God when they break them. They say things like, I know that God wants me to be, what, fill in the blank, happy, right? I know that God wants me to be happy. So I can no longer honor my vows that I made to this person and be happy. Now really, this is a symptom of a greater issue in society. By and large, I'm just going to say, cut it straight, by and large, we're a pack of liars, We will break our word for the slightest of reasons, mostly revolving around what's best for me, or at least what I think is best for me. We look out for what? Number one. Look out for number one. Beloved, it mustn't, mustn't, I like that word, must, must not, mustn't be that way amongst Christians. Yet, unfortunately, we struggle with the same issues, right? Even in the church, we break our word to one another with stunning regularity. We even change churches like we change clothes. Make that, let that sink in. We change churches like we change clothes. When the going gets tough, we get going, right? When, when it's not what I want it to be, when I don't get what I want out of it, I decide it's not worth it to stay. Now, I'm not necessarily, I'm not talking about legitimate changes in the course of our lives, right? There are times when we have to to make that decision to leave. I'm talking about being flippant about leaving when the going gets tough. But I want to say, too, though, that we can become promise breakers by habitually changing our plans, by even habitually showing up late or failing to show up when others are depending upon us. I mean, so it, it's, it's in the serious things of, of life, like changing a church or, or getting divorced or things like that, but it's also in how I live my life day to day, whether I'm going to be a promise keeper or a promise breaker. Even greater though, is hopping from church to church without commitment, right? Beloved, these problems, these these issues, become even greater when suffering and persecution are present. Because the lives of, of your brethren may depend upon your faithfulness. That's what's going on here with James, and and as he writes this letter. He wrote this letter, as we know, to a group of Christians who were in the grip of great suffering. And as their shepherd, James was concerned about a stunning lack of faithfulness among his people, as many of them faced great difficulties. 
I want you to get that picture is that there's great pressure coming down on these people. And James is seeing a stunning lack of faithfulness as they face these great difficulties because, because pressure and suffering reveals cracks in our character. It reveals a lack of integrity. And that's why James is concerned. That's why James says, don't be double-minded. Because being double-minded is, is a lack of integrity, a lack of wholeness, if you will. James is very concerned about this. So James, James gives then two simple commands. Two simple commands which will ensure a life of, of integrity before our Lord, even in the face of great suffering. You must first never swear falsely. Never make a false oath. Second, you must always speak truthfully. Simple, right? Simple yet profound. James writes, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath. James says, above all, simply drawing attention to this statement. He has something very important to say to the brethren. Now let's make sure we understand that he is speaking to the brethren. He is speaking to those who have proclaimed the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells them not to swear. Now, the Greek word here that he, that's translated not to swear is, is the, the, a word that means to bind or strengthen. The, the Hebrew equivalent mean, meant literally to swear. Now, we need to make sure we understand that James is not talking about the use of coarse language. Now, of course, in other parts of Scripture, we see that, that the use of uh, coarse language is not permitted. He's speaking, though, of strengthening your word by swearing by some higher authority. Now, there, we need to under, also understand it's important that we understand that an, that an oath or swearing in this way had three parts. Had three parts. First... And when you made an oath, you were, you were attesting that you were telling the truth. I'm, I'm, I'm telling the truth. It's an attestment. I, you, can, you can trust me. I'm telling you the truth. Second, you called for God to be your witness in this truth statement. So, so you invoke the name. You say, I'm telling the truth. And you invoke the name of God to say that God is my witness. I'm telling the truth. And third... You invoked God's punishment if you violated your word. So you said something like, I'll be under God's judgment if I break my word. Now, what we have to try to understand then is how these, this verse is connected to the rest of James. So we know, I mean, he's, he's given a prohibition. He's saying, don't swear. Don't do it. So how, what's, he, what's he getting at? Why is, he, why is he saying this at this point in the, in the letter? Now, commentators are split on whether the verse, this verse is connected to the verses before or after. And fr- but frankly, I, I believe that it's even greater than that. I believe that James is summing up all that he has said now in this one very important statement, which makes this one of the more important verses in the whole book. In other words, we say it this way. If the brethren simply followed the commands of this verse, all the chaos that James has described amongst the people that he's writing to would go away. If they just followed what he's saying right here. You may be a little incredulous at that, right? You may be like, wait a minute. But let me, let me, try, to, let me try to prove this to you. Uh, let me reset the story. As, as we've learned, as I've alluded to, there's great conflict among James's recipients, the, the recipients of this letter. Now, as we've said, James was writing to those who were face, facing great difficulty. They were suffering for their faith in Christ. Many of them were hungry and without the necessities of life. We've referred to them as the poor brethren. Their profession of Jesus as the Messiah had put them in a precarious position within the Jewish culture. They had lost their access to the rest of society, most likely because of this profession as a faith in Jesus as the Messiah. 
Now, we know that rich landowners who were loosely associated with the church, that they were taking advantage of them by employing them and then withholding the necessary wages that they needed to, to make it through life. They also drugged them or dragged them into court and they obtained partial judgments against them. Now, there seems to be another group of people here that we've dubbed, or I've dubbed, the, the fence riders. The, they're, they're a well-to-do group that are nominally in the church. They, they're attached to the church, and, and they, they claim to be Christians, but they seem to be struggling with their friendship with the world. They seem to be kind of one foot in the world and one foot in the church. They seem to be more interested in traveling to make money than they were in staying home and caring for their brethren in need. As such, James calls them out. He challenges them. And he tells them in James chapter 1, verse 20 to 22, he says this, But prove yourselves to be doers of the word. Don't just claim it. Don't just say, I'm a Christian. Don't just say that I love Christ. Don't just do that. Don't just say it by word, but, but do. But be actively doing what the word says. Not merely hearers who delude themselves. They must live out their obedience to Christ in their daily lives. That's what he's saying. Anything less is deceiving yourself. He says in James chapter 1, verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his own tongue, he deceives his heart and this man's religion is worthless. And he says this in chapter 1, verse 27, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to what? To keep oneself unstained by the world. In other words, James says, Your faith, if it is a true faith, must be put to action. Your faith must be evident in all your dealings. Your faith is especially seen, then, in whether or not you are truly caring for the needy and hurting among you. And according to James, your faith is also shown in whether or not you stand for or against, or whether you, for or against the judgments, I mean, those who, who would have to be, give partial judgments to people, toward people, or whether you would show mercy in your judgments. Because he says in, in chapter 2, verse 13, For judgment will be merciless to one who sh- has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over just <clears throat> judgment. Now that's important. Because he's saying that you will be mercilessly judged by God if you are unwilling to show mercy towards your brother even in the face of certain persecution. You get the point? So basically he's saying that if you are unwilling to show mercy towards your brother, even when you know that you're going to be persecuted for doing so, you will not be shown mercy. You have a dead faith that doesn't save you if you're unwilling to help in their time of need. He says in James 2.15, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? You see, James is saying that if your faith faith is dead, if it doesn't, it's not accompanied by works. In other words, you can't claim to be a Christian at all if you are unwilling to help the brethren. Now, you might be asking yourself, I hope you are, what does this have to do with the passage at hand? Now, I believe there's an amazing connection here, and I hope to prove that to you. Now, you may remember a few sermons ago, we made a connection from James to the wisdom of Proverbs, specifically Proverbs 3. In Proverbs 3, verse 27, it says this, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to, to do it. Verse 28. This is Proverbs 3.28. Listen to this. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with me. Now what is that? They're making an oath, right? They're saying, they're saying Go and come back, and tomorrow I'll give it. I promise you, tomorrow. Now there's an un, there's an important aspect of understanding scripture that we need to that are 
or interpreting scripture that we need to understand. In James 2, James writes these verses, the, the verses about the brother and sister coming in need. He writes these verses, and, and he, he's speaking of the brother, brother and sister coming in need, but he, he alludes to Proverbs 3. Can you, you hear it ring, right? That, that's, the, that's the wisdom of Proverbs 3 that says don't, don't let them come and not give them what they need. Don't promise them that tomorrow, right, that, that's ringing. That should be ringing in their ears. Now, he didn't specifically quote Proverbs 3, but he did allude to it. Now, here's what we need to understand. See, these people were exposed to the same Bible that we have, excluding the New Testament, of course. We must understand that, that they lived in a verbal society, and not everyone had a copy of the Bible. So they gathered like we are gathered here to listen to the Word being read and explained. Which is one of the reasons why we do it. Now, there would, we have to understand there would have been an ongoing discussion about the Word of God. As an example, listen to John 1.45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So, so they were aware that the scripture had said that there was going to be a coming Messiah and they had had an ongoing discussion about who this person was going to be. Therefore, now this is where I want you to, what you, I want you to understand. Therefore, when James alludes to Proverbs 3, so when he says this in, in James chapter 2, when he says, don't turn away your brother or sister in need, he's alluding to, to Proverbs 3. And they, he would have expected that his readers would have thought back to that passage, which states that you shouldn't make an oath. You should not promise them that you'll do it tomorrow when you could do it today. You see the connection? Don't make a pledge to give tomorrow what you could do today. Don't, don't make a promise to do later what you can do now. It doesn't take much to imagine then that these people were making oaths to help when the timing was right to help for them. They were saying, I promise, I, I promise I'm telling you the truth tomorrow, I'll, I'll help you. Come back tomorrow or even come back next year. Remember, I'm going to go to another city and make a profit and spend a year there. He's saying, look, don't make these oaths. They were not following. They weren't following through on their promises. They weren't following through on what they said they were going to do. They had it in their power to help. But they were choosing not to. And the reason that they were choosing not to was because they knew that they would suffer the same persecution if they were caught doing so. They were unwilling to take up their cross and follow Christ. They were unwilling to to not be friends with the world. See, that's the reason why James said you can't be friends with God and friends with the world at the same time. Can't be both. Now hold on to that thought as we look into the nature of oaths, especially at this time. The question we must answer then is whether or not Scripture allows for oaths at all. Are there, are there lawful, are there lawful quote, oaths, that is? In our own culture, we use oaths when we want to emphasize our truthfulness. We've all heard kids say something like, I swear on a stack of Bibles. Have you ever heard that one? I swear on a stack of Bibles. Or you might have heard, I cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. You heard that one? That, that is an oath? As kids promising things and wanting people to believe us, it sometimes demands that we swear because we are not known for what? Not known for telling the truth. That's the reason why we invoke an oath is because we are not known to tell the truth. So oaths then, these types of oaths, are, become, are devised by man because of man's basic dishonesty. We've invented them, and, and, and sometimes even curses are imposed upon ourselves because, because we have learned that man can't be trusted to keep his word. We, we invoke these oaths because we can't be trusted. 
Sometimes it's as simple as children's oaths. And sometimes it's in more important context to ensure that a person is telling the truth. In the court of law, we might say, or we do say, we swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God, or so help me God. Now, we, as we have seen, though, there are good oaths that we can make before God and man, like, as I use as an example, our wedding vows. That's an oath. I'm making an oath that I'm going to stay, and I'm going to, I'm going to be faithful to this person. Or, or, as we brought it up, swearing to tell the truth in the court of law. Those are solemn oaths that we can make. Now, are all these types of oaths the same? I guess that's the question. Well, if you study the Old Testament, you will find that many men and women of God bound themselves by oaths before God. In the Old Testament, there were some oaths that were taken by men of God. In Genesis 24, 2 and 3, Abraham made his servant swear before God to keep his word in going to find a wife for his son Isaac. In Genesis chapter 26, Isaac exchanged those with Abimelech, making a covenant not to do harm. In Genesis 31, Jacob made a covenant or an oath between himself and Laban, his uncle. In Nehemiah 10, 29, the people vowed before God to keep and observe all the commandments of God. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians eleven thirty one, the Apostle Paul took a vow before God, a vow of integrity that he would do what he said. God even, God even called for oaths at times. In Exodus 22.10 it says this, If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them. So God even has called for oaths. In Deuteronomy 6.13 it says, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. So, so we see that, that oaths were made in, in Scripture. We even see God making oaths in Scripture. Uh, you just think back to the covenants. Genesis chapter 12, the, the, uh, the Abrahamic covenants. We don't have time to study them, but, but we need to understand that God Himself was the guarantor of these covenants. Listen to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he would, could swear by no one greater, He did what? He swore by Himself. So we see that God is the one uh, making the, the covenants. He's the one making these oaths. And He guarantees them. Because of Hebrews 6, 6, 17 says this, In the same way God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose interposed with what? An oath. So that the, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hope of or take hold of the hope set before us. God is so trustworthy that, that it gives us great hope, knowing, and great encouragement, knowing that He's going to follow through on His promises. So we clearly see that oaths were made in the Scriptures and that God Himself even made oaths. But, but here's the, then the real issue that we need to grapple with. All of the, excuse me, all legitimate oaths, all legitimate oaths in the Old Testament or in the New were, were very solemn occasions. They weren't made flippantly. They weren't something that you made at on, uh, just being rash. They weren't rash in nature. They were very solemn and, and serious. They, they confirmed the word of, of the people who were making them. They invoked the name of God as a witness to the truthfulness of their word. They vowed to stand in judgment of God should they go back on their word. There's nothing, there was nothing rash about them. Now, let me shift a bit. And talk about the nature of oaths in James's culture and why James is saying what he's saying. I think the best way to understand this is look at, looking, to look at the teaching of Jesus on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to Matthew 5. 
verse 33. Jesus says, Again you have heard the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now here, Jesus, that is, points to the rabbinic teaching and tradition. He's not referring specifically to the Old Testament. He's saying, when he says the ancients were told, that's a formula for us to know that he, this is what the rabbinic teaching was. The rabbinic tradition. The tradition said, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Which sounds really good. Here's the problem. They twisted it. They twisted it. They said, fulfill your vows to the Lord, but if I make a vow or I swear to something other than the Lord, then I can break it. Therefore, my my vow doesn't actually count unless I invoke the name of God. Therefore, uh, it would be something akin to making a promise with your fingers crossed. You know that I have my fingers crossed? That, that's another thing that we do. So they were making vows without using the name of God so they could easily, in their mind, break through those vows without the fear of judgment. So they would swear by heaven, or by earth, or by Jerusalem. But Jesus tells them that that is wrong. He says this, He says it is wrong to make these kinds of of vows, not by heaven, because it is the throne of God. So so if you make a, a vow by heaven, it's associated with God, right? Not by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. So again, you're not getting away with anything by by making a vow to, to earth. Or by Jerusalem, for it, it is the city of the great king. His point is, is that you can't escape the vow before God. If you, even if you try to craft a way of saying it that makes it not associated with God, so you don't say the name of God, you still are, are, you still are responsible for what you say. You're still responsible for the oath that you've made. All these things were associated with God. He still sees your vow and and He holds you responsible for it. So, So don't make the vow unless you really mean it. Then he says this in Matthew 5.36, Nor shall you make an oath by your head, or for, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You see, they were invoking, even invoking bodily harm on themselves if they didn't keep their word. See, they made these vows to hide their lying heart. They were liars and everyone knew it, but they said these things to convince others that they were telling the truth. When in reality, they never, they never had any intention to tell the truth. Their thinking was twisted and it was perverted. They never intended to keep their word unless it was advantageous to them. So Jesus simply says this in Matthew 5.37, But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. In other words, just tell the truth. That's it. Just be truthful. Just do what you say. Live a life of integrity before the Lord. Make vows only in solemn, serious situations. And then keep those vows. Don't break them. Never swear falsely. Never say, and let me tie this to James now. Never say to your brother or sister in Christ that you intend to help them, but tell them to go and come back tomorrow for that help because it's wrong and it lacks integrity. I don't care what kind of oath you put to it. James is saying, don't be double-minded. In our vernacular, it means don't be, do- don't be two-faced. Don't be one thing in the world and, and another thing in the church. These folks, there were folks in this, these, this church or these churches that weren't living truthfully. They had it in their power to help. They promised to help, but they refused to do so when the going got tough. Now let me stop here and, talk, and speak to you directly. We have to rec- we need to recognize this was easier said than done. If we think about what's happening here, this was a life or death situation. 
You lost everything if you proclaimed Christ as your Messiah. You lost everything if you had the wrong association. And so I'm sure that there were people who were trying to pick their way through life and trying to, trying to make sure that they didn't associate in the wrong way so that they would have to suffer this per- persecution. You see, they hadn't been affected yet by it. They were going about their lives and were even able to participate in local commerce. They were traveling to make money you know, despite of all that's happening. And, and one can imagine them even saying, I'm going away to make and save money so that when I return I can help even more. But in reality, it's, it, was, it was evil. They were probably even, as we said earlier, making oaths like Jesus talked about. That this, this habit of making false oaths had entered into the church. That's probably why James told him in James 4.17, Therefore, to, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. If you know what is right, if you know that you're supposed to, that you need to help your brother in need, and you don't do it, it's sin. It's sin. Sinful. It's evil when you have it in your power to help and you refuse to do so. Even though, and that's what I want you to understand, even though these people, even though they faced great loss, they faced great loss if they helped, James doesn't let them off the hook. He tells them that refusal to help reveals their faith is a dead and worthless faith. By and large, brethren, we're not faced with these dilemmas. Right? We're not, we don't have this suffering. We're not facing this suffering. And we don't know many people who are. Right? So we're not in that dilemma. So I, I, want, us to, I want us to understand that dilemma and get a grasp of it. But I want you to also think of this. I want you to be cultivating a life of integrity now. Don't make promises you don't intend to keep. If you owe money, pay it. If you say you're going to help, do it. Don't back out on your promises. Be, care- be very careful in what you promise to do, especially when you promise to care for others. Because it's serious business before God. To fulfill your responsibilities before God is serious business. And He takes it seriously. If he's going to hold these people who, are, who stand to lose everything, if he's going to hold them accountable, how much more is he going to hold accountable the one that loses nothing except what he gives? Think about it. Never, ever swear falsely. If you make an oath, mean it. Keep your promises. Don't be rash in what you say you're going to do. This brings us to the second of two commands, which will ensure a life of integrity before the Lord. You must, and we've seen the first, never swear falsely. Secondly, we must always speak, always speak truthfully. Always speak truthfully. James says, but your yes is to be yes, and your no, no. Yes, yes, and no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. This is where the rubber meets the road. In other words, James says, just do what you say you're going to do. You've turned to Christ to follow Him. You knew what you were getting yourself into. Presumably, you counted the cost and realized it would be great. Jesus Himself said to His disciples, uh, if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Matthew 16, 24. On another occasion, in, in Luke 9... He says this, as, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You knew what you were getting into. It's right there. On, on an, yet another occasion in Luke fourteen twenty eight, it says, For which, of you, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Then he says this, Luke 14.33, my point is, is that, before I read this, the point that I'm making is, is that these people knew what they were getting into. He says that, I mean, he didn't, Jesus doesn't hide it. He's clear. He says this, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Look, if you're not willing to give up your possessions, you can't be his. Now think about that. These people are suffering great difficulty and there's people who won't help them, the brethren that won't help them. And then James is saying, you don't make promises you don't want to keep. Listen to Psalm 15. Psalm 15, verse 1, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friends, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Now listen to this. Listen to this. Psalm 15, 4, write it down. He swears to his own hurt and he does not change. He swears to his own hurt and he does not change. Have you committed a life, your life? Have you counted the cost to live a life that is pleasing to God? then live a life of truth-telling. Live a life of promise-keeping. Do what you say you're going to do even when it hurts. Even when you stand to lose everything. If you're a husband, you made a solemn vow to love and protect your wife even if that means your own death. If you've committed to to following Christ, that might mean giving your life. If you've covenanted to be a member of a church, then you committed to love and be a part of the body of Christ even when it hurts. And even when it's not convenient. You've committed to care for your brethren even when the going gets tough. And I'm telling you right now, brethren, it has not, it's not tough like what we see here with James. And so if you struggle today to, to do what you're supposed to do, you can only imagine what it would be like when the going really does get tough. We live in a culture, beloved, who, that doesn't value the truth. Therefore, these, you may, may be sitting here thinking this is foreign. It's a foreign concept. But that's what this is what it means to live a life of integrity before our Lord. You serve a God of truth who expects you to live a life of truth. Augustine says this, Where I found truth, there I found my God, who is truth itself. James says, you want to avoid God's judgment? Your yes is to be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. You want to you want to have a faith that is a true faith. You will obey God by helping your brother in need, even when it hurts. Even when it hurts. We've seen the two commands that James gives that will ensure a life of integrity before the Lord. I. I told you that I think it sums up everything he set up until now. That if we if we live this way, all the chaos. If 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 those who listen to him live this way, and if we live this way, all the chaos that ensued, all the chaos that they were dealing with, would go away because they would be living a life of truth.
I pray that these two truths, these two commands would characterize you. That you would not be a person who swears falsely. And that you would always be a a truth teller. You would always speak truthfully. I pray that you will practice a life of integrity today that when you don't face great persecution. I pray that you do what you say and take care of those who you are responsible for taking care of. So that when persecution and suffering do come, you will be a man or woman who keeps their word. That's the type of person you'll be. You'll be that person because you've practiced being that person. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We praise you for this truth, these truths. Lord, we we want, we desire to be pleasing to you. I pray that we'd be a people who speak truthfully. That we'd be a people who take serious our vows. Whether it be a vow of marriage or speaking in front of a court or whatever it is that we vow to do, that we would do it. Be careful, carefully engaging in those things. I also pray that we'd be a people who just would just speak truth. Not be liars. Father, I pray and ask that we would follow Christ in this way. Being our supreme example of keeping His Word in the face of suffering. We thank You and praise You. We pray for this time of communion coming up that we'd be solemn and serious in taking it. In Christ's name, amen. As I alluded to in my prayer, our Lord Jesus is the supreme example of keeping His Word in the face of great suffering. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And He resolutely faced it. In Matthew 26, too, it says that you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. He submitted Himself to the Father's will in the face of that great suffering. In Matthew 26, 36, they came to Gethsemane and He told the disciples to sit here while I go and pray. And he he became grieved and distressed. And he said, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And in verse 39, it says this, He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but you will. He had submitted himself. He swore to his own hurt. And he did not change. In Matthew 26, 53, it says, he says this. They, they, the disciple Peter had cut the, the ear off, drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And, and he says in Matthew 26, 53, Do you not think... Do you, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How, how then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? He swore by His own hurt and He didn't change. He was committed to do exactly what He said He would do. He could have stopped at any moment, could have stopped it at any moment. And he could have called down legions of angels. 
in Philippians 2, it says, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, so that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, of God the Father. Jesus' willingness to suffer. Willingness to suffer and die in your place brought great glory to the Father. He gets the glory, but you get the benefit. He took your sin upon Himself, and you get His righteousness. If only you believe. You weren't saved by anything that you've done. It's everything that He did. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. If you're sitting here today and you know the Lord Jesus, we're going to have a time of communion, observing the Lord's Supper, meditating on what Christ accomplished at the cross on your behalf. If you are here, the Scriptures tell us, don't don't partake in an unworthy manner. So if you're here and you have unconfessed sin, confess it. Confess it. Repent. Turn from it. If you can't, then let the, let the, the plate and the cup pass. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, don't partake with us. This is for believers. This is for those who have turned to the Lord Jesus in saving faith, who have believed in His sacrifice on the cross for your sin. If you're a parent here with children, be clear with them. Use this time as a teaching time. Don't let them partake if they're not ready. If if they have not demonstrated that they know and love the Lord Jesus proclaim them clearly, then don't let them partake. Use it as a teaching time. If you have something against your brother or sister in Christ, go to them. Don't partake in an unworthy manner with unconfessed sin or, or animosities. you to take some time as we as we sing and pass out the elements to think upon these things think upon the truths of scripture think upon what Christ has done meditate on on what he has done on your behalf how he has cleansed you John says in 1 John 1 9 that if we confess our sins he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness Confess sin.